Good morning. I hope everyone is doing well today. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 5. It's where we're going to be studying today, Acts chapter 5. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're studying through the New Testament book of Acts this year, and we find ourselves turning to Acts chapter 5 today. And in Acts chapter 5, what we are going to see today is an event that involves lying and money. And those two things, lying and money, they remind me of a story that I've told you once before. Um, my brother has some friends who noticed that their three-year-old daughter would spend a lot of time hanging around the table by the entry of, of their house, right by the front door. And on this entry table by the front door, there would be this tray where the dad would leave his keys and his watch and his wallet, and then any cash that he had in his, in his pockets, he would leave on that tray. And on more than one occasion, the parents had caught their little daughter in the act of going through their dad's money. So, so the next time they caught her doing this, they thought they would use it as an opportunity to teach her uh, about not, not taking things that don't belong to her. So uh, they, they, they saw her doing it again, and they taught her the lesson. And then after the lesson, they asked her, is this all the money that you took? And sheepishly, she said yes, and she handed over the money that she had in her hand. Well, months later, when they were helping the little girl clean her room, her mother started pulling out everything that had been stuffed under the bed. And in doing so, she found this, a Ziploc bag full of cash, <laughs> dad's cash. Apparently, that wasn't all the money that she had taken. It turns out this little girl had been stealing money from dad's pile for months. N not enough to be noticed. A few dollars here or there. But if you look closely, there's some fives in there. There's a 20 in there. The reason I tell you this story is because the passage that we're going to look at today involves lying and money. So let's go ahead and take a look at the passage for today. Acts chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. Will you stand with me for the reading of Scripture? It says this, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. That, that is our passage for today. You may be seated. For those of you who brought a friend today, you might be second-guessing yourself, thinking maybe we should have waited till next week. Because this passage seems heavy, right? I mean, people getting struck down dead for lying. 
Do you notice how this verse ended by saying that great fear came upon the whole church? That includes this church right now after hearing this passage. Uh, this passage raises a lot of questions. And maybe the most prevalent of them being this. Can this happen to me? Is this going to happen to me? Is God going to strike me down like he did Ananias and Sapphira? Isn't that the first question that crossed your mind? It, it was for me. Well, in order to answer a question like this one, we're going to have to ask some other questions first. In Acts chapter 3, we asked this very same question when Peter healed a man who was lame from birth. There was a man who had no use of his legs who was sitting outside of the temple gate begging for money. And Peter came and in the name of Jesus, Peter healed him. And we all wondered, can this happen to me? Does God heal people like that that dramatically even today? And our answer in chapter 3 was, yes, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But not every description in the book of Acts is a prescription for how God always works. There are some things described in the book of Acts that are not prescribed for all Christians at all times. In the case of the healing of the man who was lame from birth, we concluded that not everyone gets healed like that. But that healing in Acts chapter 3 was a specific event that happened at a specific time for a specific reason. In the same way, two chapters later, when we get to Ananias and Sapphira and we ask the same question, can this happen to me? We need to apply the same hermeneutics that we did before. God doesn't always heal like he did in Acts chapter 3, and God doesn't always judge like he does in Acts chapter 5. So, so if you're wondering... If I tell a lie today, is God going to strike me down like Ananias? Our answer to that question is the same as it was at the healing. Yeah, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. So technically, he could strike you down. But not every description in the book of Acts is a prescription for how God always works. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira was a specific event that happened at a specific time for a specific reason. So the question that we need to be asking is not, can this happen to me? A better question is, why did this happen in the first place? Why did Luke include this in the book of Acts? If this specific event happened at a specific time for a specific reason, then what is the reason? Why did all of this happen in chapter 5? Well, there are two reasons that I would like us to explore today, and those are the sanctity of the church and the seriousness of sin. I think that this specific event in Acts chapter 5 can teach us some things about these specific areas. So, so let's go back to, to the beginning of the passage and walk through the details of everything that is going on here. Maybe you're like me and you have heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira before, but you probably heard it as an isolated story. Maybe teaching something about not lying and always telling the truth. But I didn't really realize until studying it this week that this story of Ananias and Sapphira, it is not meant to be read alone. And notice the first word in chapter 5 is but. The word but is a conjunction. A conjunction joins two things together. So the description of Ananias and Sapphira is meant to be joined together with what comes right before it. And right before the story of Ananias and Sapphira, there are six verses that are all about the church. Now, the word church is, is not mentioned in these verses, but these verses are describing the newly formed community of Jesus followers that is growing day by day. And about this new community of Christians, we read this. 
chapter 4, verse 32 says. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There are two characteristics that I want us to notice in this passage, and they are unity and generosity. It says that these Christians were of one heart and soul, that's unity, and they had everything in common, that's generosity. These two characteristics were essential elements within the early church at this time. The next verse says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Notice how the testimony of the church is connected to the unity and generosity within the church. This is going to be important in understanding this, this passage. As the apostles would testify with their words about the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church testifies to the grace of God through the unity and the generosity towards one another. So the testimony about Jesus is connected to the unity and the generosity of the people who follow Jesus. Do you see that? The next verse is going to tell us more about this unity and generosity that was happening in the church. Verse 34 says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each who had need. Do you see how people are, are selling their stuff to meet the needs of others? That's generosity. Uh, one commentator that I read said, Luke is not describing communism here. It doesn't say that there were no rich people among them. It says that there were no needy people among them. Luke is describing a group of generous people who were sensitive to the needs of others. So, so this verse is not a prescription saying that once you become a Christian, you're not allowed to own anything you, you got to sell all your stuff and give it all away. It's not saying that. But if there is a prescription in this verse, it's that all Christians need to be generous and sensitive to the needs of others. And in this key case, the people express that generosity by selling some of their stuff to meet needs. And, and when it comes to this radical generosity, it seems that there was a poster child in the early church. The next verse describes an individual by name who exemplified this type of generosity. Verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we don't know if this guy Barnabas was the first person to sell a field and donate the money to the church, but Barnabas is the first person who does it and is mentioned by name. Now, we're going to hear more about this guy Barnabas throughout the book of Acts. He's mentioned 28 more times in six different places, but apparently this guy Barnabas, he was such a good dude that he was given a new name. Notice how Barnabas is not his real name. His real name is Joseph. But apparently, Joseph is not what the apostles called him. The apostles called him Barnabas. I don't know if you know this, uh, but my name is actually not Dusty. Like, that's not the name on my driver's license. My full name is Michael Dustin Adkins. I, I remember when somebody from church first found out that that was my full name, my Michael. They came up to me and said, I, I feel like everything I know about you is a lie. 
It's not a lie. It's a nickname. My parents named me Michael after my great-grandfather, but they've always called me Dusty. In fact, the, the, the only people who don't call me Dusty are doctors and salespeople, which, which is actually kind of helpful. Whenever I get a phone call and the person on the other end says, hey, is Mike there? And I'm like, there, there's no Mike. And hang it up. <laughs> Does anybody go by a nickname? Now, my nickname, Dusty, it's short for my middle name, Dustin. Some nicknames are actually derived from actual names. But then there are other nicknames that have nothing to do with a name. They come from somewhere else, usually with a story attached to it. But this guy, Barnabas, his nickname seems to come from the character that he displays. The name Barnabas has nothing to do with the name Joseph. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. Now, if you're going to get the nickname, son of encouragement then you must be a really encouraging person. Like, like, how did Barnabas get this nickname? Maybe the apostles were talking to one another, and they, and they were like, uh, do you know that Joseph guy? He is so encouraging. Like, if encouragement had a baby, it would be him. <laughs> Maybe we should call him that, the son of encouragement, and then a nickname is born. In order to earn a nickname like that, this guy Barnabas must have displayed a character full of encouragement. And character displayed like that, it doesn't come from nowhere. Jesus himself said, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever encouraging things Barnabas said or did that earned him the nickname, that didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of his heart. And I think the reason why Barnabas is mentioned here is to show the heart of the early church at this time. These early Christians, they were unified by the name of Jesus, and they were radically generous, meeting the needs of others. And Barnabas was the poster child. Barnabas portrays the heart of the early church. But if Barnabas is the poster child for what the heart of the church should be, then the next verse introduces the poster child of what it shouldn't be. Or poster children in this case. Chapter 5 begins like this. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Now the word but is meant to show a contrast. So we are supposed to see a difference between what Barnabas was doing compared to what Ananias and Sapphira did. So let's take a closer look at what Ananias and Sapphira were actually doing. It says that Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. There's nothing wrong with that. That's exactly what Barnabas did. And it says that Ananias and Sapphira brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that either. All of these contributions that are happening in these two passages, they are all completely voluntary. Nobody made Barnabas sell his property. He did it out of the generosity of his heart. Likewise... Nobody made Ananias and Sapphira sell their property either. It was voluntary. Peter speaks to the voluntary nature of this act in verse 4 when he says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Peter is saying, Ananias, nobody made you sell your land. You chose to do that on your own. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Peter points out, Ananias, nobody made you sell your land. And once you did sell it, nobody told you to donate the money. You chose to do that on your own as well. 
And though any donation of money would have been generous, what Ananias chose to do next was different. And apparently what was different about what Ananias did with the money compared to what Barnabas did was that Ananias lied about it. Notice how Peter said, you have not lied to man, but to God. And apparently the lie that Ananias was guilty of, it was not an innocent mistake. It wasn't an error in bookkeeping. It says that it was a deed that was contrived in his heart. Notice the mention of the word heart. If Barnabas is the poster child for the heart of what the early church should be, then whatever is going on in Ananias' heart is the opposite. Here is the deed that Ananias contrived in his heart. Back in verse 1, it says, And with his wife's knowledge. Notice that two times in one sentence we read, with his wife. Luke is going out of his way to show us that Ananias' wife, Sapphira, she was in on it too. She was also involved in the deed that they were contriving. And the details of this deed was that he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. The word kept back here, it's a rare verb that means to put aside for oneself in a dishonest or secret way. And the dishonest and secret thing that Ananias and Sapphira were doing was that they kept back for themselves some of the proceeds, but when they presented their donation at the feet of the apostles, they let everyone believe that they had given all of their money to the church. We know this because at the very end of the story, Peter asks Sapphira about the exact price that she sold the land for. Peter said to her, tell me what you sold the land. Tell me that you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. It's almost like Peter was giving Sapphira a chance to come clean. She, she didn't know that they know. So she was keeping up the lie. Do you see that? Now, why did Ananias and Sapphira lie like this? They didn't have to. Peter said that it was their money. They could give as little or as much as they wanted. But apparently, what Ananias and Sapphira wanted was to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted everybody to think that they were radically generous without having to be radically generous. Maybe they heard everybody going on and on about how great Barnabas was. And they wanted that kind of reputation for themselves. But a reputation like Barnabas is costly. So Ananias and Sapphira found a shortcut. They contrived a deed in their heart where they could get credit without paying the cost. Jesus himself said, you cannot serve both God and money. And that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira were trying to do. They were trying to give off the appearance that they were serving God, but hanging on to their money at the same time. Here is the rest of what Jesus said. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice the words devotion and love. Aren't those matters of the heart? It appears that what Jesus is saying here is less about money and more about the condition of your heart. So when Ananias and Sapphira contrived to, to keep back some of their money, what they were actually keeping back was a part of their heart. And Jesus says, when it comes to your heart, only offering a part won't work. 
You cannot serve two masters. Half-hearted devotion will eventually lead you away from God. And you know what a heart that is drifting away from God looks like? It looks like this. In another passage, Jesus says, You hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, Ananias and Sapphira didn't honor God with their lips. They tried to honor God with a manageable amount of their money, which revealed that their hearts were far from God. And when your heart is far from God, but you still want to use God for your agenda, Jesus calls that hypocrisy. And that is the real lie that Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of. Now, if you're anything like me, when I first read this passage, there was a part of me that thought, yeah, but this seems really harsh. God's going to strike these guys down for lying, for being hypocrites? Does that thought ever cross your mind? That this seems harsh? Well, harshness can be subjective. Sometimes harshness is necessary. Sometimes harshness is actually for a good reason. Like, if you go to the doctor because of a lump, and their response is, we're going to need to remove a portion of your body, we wouldn't call that harsh. We might call it drastic. The word drastic means action that is sudden, severe, or serious. If there's a cancerous tumor in your body and a doctor's decision about what to remove, it might seem severe, but that severity is not about harshness. It's about seriousness. Cancer is serious business. Cancer can spread quickly and cancer can become deadly. And because of this, at the very first signs of cancer, action must be taken. Sometimes even drastic action. Because just like cancer itself can cause serious harm to the body, there must also be serious actions to protect it. And in the early church, the body of believers was especially vulnerable. One commentary that I read said this, there's an element of the Ananias and Sapphira event where one could view it as God removing the distrust and disunity provoked by the couple's dishonesty before it could spread throughout the newly formed church. Do you see what the quote is saying? In the early church, the testimony of Jesus was connected to the unity and the generosity of the believers. So when Ananias and Sapphira introduce dishonesty, disunity, and distrust to this new church, the testimony of Jesus is threatened. So like cutting out a tumor before the cancer can spread, God removes Ananias and Sapphira before these traits can spread throughout the body of believers. So in one sense, the reason why the Ananias and the Sapphira event happened was to protect the sanctity of the church. The word sanctity means holy or purity. Ananias and Sapphira were bringing something into the church that God wanted out, so he removed it and removed it in a seemingly drastic manner. But remember, the severity of God's actions were because of the seriousness of sin. That's the other observation that I want us to see in this passage. Uh, the, the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is a description of a specific event that happened at a specific time to specific individuals. But there are events within this passage that can apply to people like us today. So when we ask, can this happen to me? We're wondering about the getting struck dead part. But maybe what we should be wondering about 
is, can this happen to me, referring to whatever happened inside of Ananias and Sapphira that led them to do what they did. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about signs. And sometimes signs point you to things, like this sign points you to Kennywood. But signs have other functions as well. For example, take a look at this sign. The sign doesn't point you in a direction. It just points you to some danger. Be careful. The deer around here can mess you up. <laughs> this is a warning. And warnings don't tell you what to do. They just tell you what to be aware of. In this sense, the account of Ananias and Sapphira is meant to be a warning to us that we need to be aware of the seriousness of sin. And when it comes to sin, we need to be aware that sin doesn't always look serious at first. Sin grows, and it spreads, and it kills. Notice how Peter asks Ananias, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So, so when it comes to Ananias' ultimate failure, when it comes to the sin that Ananias would suffer the consequence for, that sin was contrived internally. Peter said that Ananias' sin, it began in his heart, and it was contrived there. The word contrived, it means to deliberate over. So, so Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't fall into their sin. They thought about it. They talked about it. They molded over internally. So when it comes to their sin, it wasn't an accident. It was a process. When Peter asks Ananias, why did you keep back for yourself some of the proceeds, almost every commentary that I looked at made a reference to Joshua chapter 7. Uh, apparently, the rare verb that we referenced earlier, uh, to keep back in a secret or dishonest way, that is the same exact word used in the Greek translation of Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, the Israelites are in the middle of a war, and God specifically instructed his people not to take anything for themselves from the plunder. But they find out that there was this one guy, Achan, who kept back for himself some of the forbidden plunder. And not just some of it, but a lot of it. And when they questioned Achan about it, he said some things revealing the process of sin in his life. Here's what Achan said. Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now at first, this doesn't look like anything, but when you look closer, you can kind of see what was happening inside of Achan. He crumbs across this plunder. It's a robe. It's some silver and some gold. But notice, that's not how he describes this stuff. He calls the robe beautiful. And he knows the exact weight of the gold and the exact number of the silver pieces, which means he didn't just see this stuff. It seems that there was a process from when he first saw it to when he eventually hid it in his tent. And my imagination pictures the process like this. Achan opened up the door for the first time, and he sees the silver, and he sees the gold, and he sees the robe, and then he stops dead in his tracks and remembers, God said, don't do it. 
But in his pause, there's a little voice in his head that says, God never said we couldn't look. So he looks around to see if anybody's watching. And he closes the door behind himself to give himself some privacy. And he takes a closer look. And he holds up the robe. And he sees its intricate stitching. And its fine fabric. And all of a sudden, the robe isn't just a robe anymore. It's a beautiful robe. And then he begins to look through the silver and the gold. And the only way that you can know that, that a bar of gold weighs 50 shekels is if you pick it up, you hold it in your hand. And the only way that you can know that there were 200 pieces of silver is if you take the time to count it. I wonder how long Achan was in there. In my imagination, I see him putting on the robe, looking at himself in the mirror, I imagine him wearing the robe while he spreads out all of those silver coins and he rolls around like Scrooge McDuck in it, right? <laughs> Do you see how Achan admits that before he took the stuff, he coveted it? So stealing all that stuff wasn't an accident. It was a process. A process that was contrived internally. And maybe this process started with something small that grew into something bigger. Maybe it started with a thought that grew into a wish. Then he started making rationalizations. And then when his heart was finally convinced, he hatched a plan that led to his disobedience. But somewhere along the way, Achan's heart got attached to the stuff, which led to him keeping back the plunder and turning away from God. Do you see how Achan lost the battle long before he stole the plunder? Do you see how Achan's error started from the inside? Maybe even with something small. I've shared this quote with you many times before, but whenever we talk about the seriousness of sin, this quote paints a helpful picture. It says, we would never think of letting the lion in, but we pay no mind to the little foxes who slowly break down the hedges through which the lion will one day enter. Do you see the picture here? We would never let a lion in. We would never do the big, bad, egregious sin. But the little foxes, the little sins that we think are no big deal, over time, they tear down the hedges that eventually let the lion in. And this morning, as we look at the events of Acts chapter 5, we can agree that Ananias and Sapphira eventually let a lion in. But were there any little foxes beforehand? Was their eventual lie precipitated by a bunch of little lies that they told themselves beforehand? Little lies like it's not that big of a deal. It's only one time. Look at all the good that we're doing. Nobody will ever find out. Listen to this passage from The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. He writes... God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, God is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by, becoming, by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking 
That either God doesn't care about it or that he's powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. Do we think that we will get away with our revolt? Do we even think about our revolt? The very last verse in this passage says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And fear is an understandable response in this case. I mean, look what just happened to Ananias and Sapphira. But I bet you this fear got them all thinking, got them all thinking about themselves. I mean, our first question when we read this passage was thinking about ourselves. We said, can this happen to me? And after our study of this passage this morning, our final answer should be, it doesn't have to. Based on everything that we have talked about this morning, I think this passage in Acts chapter 5 is calling us to do three things. Check your heart, clean your tent, and chase out the foxes. Are you letting any little foxes in your lives? Little sins that we pay no mind to. Sin is serious. It can grow into something bigger. Those foxes can eventually let a lion in, so chase them out of your life. Do you have anything hiding in your tent like Achan did? Maybe it's time to bring those things out in the open. And maybe this morning we need to check our hearts. Is there any part of our lives that we are keeping back from God? Is there anything in our lives that is off limits to God? Because one of the things that we saw in this passage today is that we might think that we're simply keeping back stuff from God. Our money, our time, our relationships, whatever it may be. But anytime we keep anything from God, we are also keeping back a part of our hearts. That passage from R.C. Sproul referenced this passage in Romans, which asks, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God wants to be a part of every part of your life. Not because he's controlling, but because he's loving. And maybe right now God's loving kindness is calling us to repentance. God knows how serious sin actually is. Sin is so serious that Jesus is willing to come down from heaven to earth to take our place on the cross to save you from sin. Romans 8 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Another translation of this verse says, He who did not keep back his own son, but gave him up for us all. God loves you so much that he didn't keep back anything from saving you. Jesus was willing to die in your place to save you from your sin. So why would we keep back anything from a God who would love us like that? Jesus paid it all, so all to him we owe. We're going to sing those words together in a little bit, but before we do, we're going to celebrate communion together. So at this time, I'd like to invite our band to come on up, and I also want to invite you to go ahead and locate your communion cups. You should have received a communion cup when you came in this morning. If you did not receive a communion cup, you can just wave down one of our ushers and they will, they will get you uh, what you need.
And I'll let you go ahead and rustle around and get this opened up. But when we take communion together, the Bible tells us that we are declaring with our actions what we believe to be true with our hearts. That it is only by Jesus' broken body and his blood spilled on the cross on our behalf that we can be forgiven of our sin. So everything required for the forgiveness of our sin has already been done through Jesus' death and resurrection. So as we take the bread together, we acknowledge that it was by Jesus' body that was broken on the cross on our behalf for our sin that we are forgiven. Let's eat together. The Bible also tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we acknowledge together that it was because of our sin that Jesus' blood was spilled. And by his wounds, we are healed. Let us drink together. Will you stand with me as I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we acknowledge that in Jesus there was nothing that you kept back from us. That you were willing to come down and be made like us, to live among us, to do what we could not and live perfectly and then innocently die for our sins on a cross. We acknowledge that you are God who would do that for us. And if you're willing to do that for us, then there should not be anything that we are not willing to, to give to you. So if there is anything in us that we are keeping back, God, I pray that today would be the day that we let you in, that we check our hearts, that we clean out our tents, that we chase out the foxes, that if there's anything that is chasing our hearts away from you, that we would bring it out, that we would, we would give it to you. You paid it all. And we owe you all. So we trust you with all of our lives. And we know that because of your uh, work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we have also been made sons and daughters of God. And in that, we've now be been given access to come to you in prayer. Knowing that you hear us when we pray. So hear our prayer this morning as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Saying, our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.